Hello and welcome to RightsCast, a podcast by the Human Rights Centre at the University of Essex. In today's episode, we're going to feature a panel discussion on the future of copyright in the age of artificial intelligence. Our host is Dr. Eden Sweet from the University of Essex School of Law. So without further ado, I'll hand it over to him. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the University of Essex. Thank you for joining us today for a discussion of Dr. Aviv Gohm's book, The Future of Copyright in the Age of Artificial Intelligence. My name is Eden Sarid. I'm a lecturer at the University of Essex School of Law. Before we begin, just a quick note about technicalities. I'll start with a brief introduction of our wonderful speakers and the book. We will then hear from the discussants, followed by a response from Dr. Gohm, and finally a Q&A from the audience. If you have a question, please use the Q&A function the chat function, or raise your virtual hand. Also, if you're interested in purchasing the book, I will shortly post a link in the chat where you could purchase the book with a 35% discount. Our first speaker today is Professor Peter Manel from UC Berkeley, California, USA. Professor Manel is a world-leading expert on intellectual property across the digital technology and entertainment fields. Professor Manel authored over 100 articles and 15 books. Amongst his numerous accomplishments and dedication to the public interest, he co-founded the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology and the Berkeley Judicial Institute. Our second speaker is Professor Pina D'Agostino from Osgood Hall Law School, York University in Canada. Professor D'Agostino is a world leading international expert specializing in intellectual property, technology and innovation law and policy. Professor D'Agostino is the founder and director of the globally famous IP Osgood the IP Innovation Clinic, and the AI-powered IP Innovation Chatbot. She is a recipient of numerous recognition and is co-chair of the York University AI and Society Task Force. Our third speaker is Professor Stavula Karapapa from the University of Essex School of Law. Professor Karapapa is a world-leading expert on the challenges that digital technologies pose for existing legal regimes, particularly intellectual property and digital rights. She published widely on the legal regulation of digital networked environments, big data, and artificial intelligence. Professor Karapapa's work has been recognized nationally and internationally, and she was previously the director of the Center of Commercial Law and Financial Regulation at the University of Reading. Finally, we have with us the man of the hour, Dr. Aviv Gaon, who is a lecturer at the Harry Redziner Law School, Reichman University in Israel. Dr. Gaon's scholarship focuses on intellectual property law and technology, and competition law. His publications address the legal implications of emerging technologies, IP and AI. Dr. Gaon is the on the editorial board of the IP Journal and the recipient of the David Waver Medal for Excellence in IP Law. He's also the author of the book we're about to discuss today. Dr. Gaon's book, The Future of Copyright in the Age of Digital, uh, Artificial Intelligence, sorry, addresses some of the most interesting issues that IP and AI law currently face. The book takes us through, uh, through several interrelated explorations. It starts with a rich account of AI history, the question of legal personhood and definitions of AI. It then moves to discuss IP history and concepts of authorship and how technology affects IP theory and IP law's understanding of authorship. Finally, the book brings together these themes to suggest different models for AI authorship, inviting us to reflect and consider the future of foundational concepts in copyright as we further move into an AI world. But more on that 
from our panel of experts, starting with Professor Manal, please. This is a great pleasure and honor to participate in this uh, book launch and to have had the opportunity to read this book when it was uh, uh, in an early form or an earlier form. Uh, I want to commend uh, Dr. Gaon for uh, assembling uh, a tremendous uh, amount of, of uh, literature, both breadth and depth. Uh, he, he brings the reader uh, uh, up to speed on IP theory, uh, an introduction to intellectual uh, artificial intelligence, uh, and then trying to weave together philosophy and intellectual property law. And given the global nature of the intellectual property system, it's especially valuable. And as someone who's more steeped in the American system, it was very helpful to see uh, the wide range of material in this book. I'm going to focus my comments on three aspects. Uh, and in part, because I'm going first, I thought it would be useful to provide more of the background, some of which is in the book, but just to provide a common ground for everyone who's participating today. Uh, I want to begin uh, in some ways with the last part of the title, artificial intelligence. And I think this is, for me, as someone who comes out of the computer world as well as uh, the intellectual property world, this is an area that I think is, is often uh, misunderstood. And I want to explain some of that. Uh, and then uh, I'll talk about how I think copyright law can or uh, has been applied, something that is very well surveyed in the book. And here, I just think we're dealing with uh, an antiquated system. And therefore, I wanna finish by talking about thinking about the future, because I don't feel that, that the authors of copyright systems to date accept perhaps some countries that have dealt with AI, but certainly not the United States, uh, really uh, are in a position to, uh, to have anticipated these issues. And, and that's why I don't think this is an issue that is just in passing. We're gonna be focused on this issue for quite a while. Uh, both the US Patent Office and the US Copyright Office have been holding hearings on these issues and they parallel a lot of the material uh, that's collected in the book. So beginning with artificial intelligence, uh, and I teach a class on technological disruption, and I begin with this question. What do we mean by intelligence? Westerners tend to think of intelligence in the modern era in terms of analytic skills. But in a close-knit hunter-gatherer society, intelligence might be defined in terms of foraging skills or social skills and responsibilities. In the mid 20th century, the SAT became a salient measure of intelligence or at least academic potential, but is now falling out of vogue. In 1990, emotional intelligence became all the rage. And in the same year, Tim Berners-Lee wrote the first web browser. Today, we cannot go very far without having some IT skills and computer scientists are among the most valued, highly paid professionals in our society. But what constitutes intelligence? And how does that feed into our thinking about the kinds of problems that our society faces today? I want to begin by just saying that artificial intelligence is really just 
a semantic social construct. Uh, I worry that those outside of the computer science field misunderstand this concept based on an anthropomorphic cognitive error. Hollywood and science fiction have conditioned us into thinking of AI by reference to human intelligence or this notion of, of artificial general intelligence. But that's not really what's going on. And I think it's worth going back historically, maybe a few centuries, to realize that we've had artificial intelligence, so to speak, uh, since the Swiss watchmakers were developing alarm clocks. Uh, this was a way of triggering us to wake up at a particular hour. And even the, the functioning of a clock was a, a type of intelligence that would have been very valuable. And, in uh, primitive societies. And we see, we see all kinds of technologies developed in ancient societies from sundials uh, to other mechanisms. And so, so this is not a new concept. We've been using machines and physics to inform us and, and, and work with us. Uh, one of the big innovations that might be seen as, as another sort of milestone in intelligence was the dishwasher. This was a major innovation in the 1950s and allowed women particularly uh, to avoid some of the drudgery uh, that was very common. Uh, general purpose computers were a major, major uh, change in society. And that's my early years, my formative years are associated with that. And I wrote articles about the same kind of questions that Dr. Gaon is writing about, but as regards to whether we should protect and how we should protect software. And his work try to bring, brings that into the modern age. Uh, what we call deep learning is really a more advanced form of computer programming. And it's able to incorporate uh, memory and learning within the system. So these are systems that can audit, autonomously reprogram. And that's, that's where we are today. And one question that we face uh, and computer scientists struggle with is whether we are moving to what might be seen as a more anthropomorphic sense of intelligence. Uh, but we're not there now and there's deep debate over the whether we'll be there anytime soon. Really the main focus of AI or what's called AI today is really vision language and language translation. And just to illustrate that one of most common ways that computer scientists talk about where we are and the type of challenges are just enabling computers to recognize uh, things that are very easy for humans to recognize. So handwritten digits. So there's a famous database uh, that is used for testing systems. And the neural network technology is, is used uh, to achieve very high results in this kind of exercise. And computers have massive amounts of capacity to, to have data that can then be tested. And through testing processes, they can solve problems that humans usually can solve by the age of two or three. Uh, but there's a lot more to this. And if we move into the medical field, this type of technology is extremely important, this notion of pattern recognition uh, for doing uh, uh, the kind of diagnostic work that has been very highly valued uh, in the field of, of cancer research. 
And we see that this type of technology is now being used very broadly and generally to help us sort our photographs and to identify features. Perhaps the most uh, significant use of the vision technology uh, is in autonomous driving. And it turns out it's very hard for machines to recognize uh, people, bicycles, pictures of people and bicycles, and all kinds of road signals. So this is really what we're doing with artificial intelligence. This is you know, the state of the art or the focus. This is where the really valuable applications are. Uh, perhaps the most profitable applications are using these kinds of techniques to trigger ads. And that's what Google and Facebook and other companies spend a lot of time doing. But what about the arts? This is where predictions are made. And I've been involved with several conferences and I've met with people who do, uh, they say, artificial intelligence in music. But most of these applications are really doing things that, that synthesizers or other technologies could do previously with the assistance of humans, essentially creating different patterns that usually humans will then select as being uh, uh, especially uh, beautiful in their uh, sound uh, or lyrical content. And so the idea that Word will propose words to us as we're writing, uh, or that Google will autofill. These are the kinds of things that we see commonly. And, and I'm not sure that this is kind of the revolution that, that people were uh, and are expecting. Uh, but one could imagine that we will have data on all music created in history, and we'll be able to tag it in such a way that it will evaluate what people like and may start producing music that is more popular than perhaps purely human derived. But humans have been doing essentially that function pretty well. Uh, I mean, that's how all music is written, is that people learn music, they pick out parts they like, they reassemble it. And I don't know that that's really a change. And I don't know, I don't know that the computer is really doing uh, the selection and arrangement that's most critical. Another area that I find uh, potentially uh, closer to fruition is the creation of certain types of paintings. But notice that the area where it's perhaps most effective is in uh, works like Jackson Pollock's, which have a random quality to that. And I don't know that that's really substituting. Uh, I mean, certainly it was a breakthrough to have Jackson Pollock come up with this idea uh, and art collectors will value originals at a very high level, but this perhaps is not going to change the art world very dramatically. So it brings us to the second part of my comments having to do with what does current copyright law have to say about this? And I'm not sure it has to say a lot. Uh, under US law, our Supreme Court has read the word authors to be a constitutional requirement. And that has led courts to resolve some disputes like whether a monkey can take a photograph uh, relatively easily. The only pertinent fact in this case was that the plaintiff was a monkey suing for copyright infringement. I love that simple statement of this case. Uh, and you know, it's a very colorful case. It engages students, but I'm not sure that we should read very much into this kind of uh, 
historical view of the problem. Uh, the US Copyright Office uh, applying these kinds of uh, cases and language uh, requires a, a human being to be involved. And human beings are always interacting with machines. I mean, whenever we're using Word, we're using computer resources, and that is helpful to us. We're able to copy and paste, and, and the computer can suggest things. But humans are, are centrally involved, and I think that will control a very large portion of this area for a long time. Uh, and we can go back further in time. I mean, the invention of photography was, was very important uh, and we haven't struggled to deal with that. In fact, I think perhaps we overprotected uh, the role of, of those machines now that photography is no longer a highly technical art. It's something that we do routinely uh, all the time. And we're giving life plus an author, uh, you know, life plus the author's uh, life the author plus 70 years of protection for things that require clicking on a button. Uh, but things like the invention of new musical instruments, new ways of collect of creating sounds are not really challenging uh, the copyright system. And the, the notion that computers will behave like humans and have that capacity is not yet on the table. Uh, it would be uh, perhaps an interesting story. And, and we can anticipate that story to some extent. And I'll close by just talking uh, about my my instincts about these. And uh, I, I felt Dr. Gallen left open a lot of uh, possibilities here. And I'll be interested to see or hear how he reacts, uh, just because I'm not sure if he's strongly coming down on the side of, of, uh, of applying copyright to machine uh, authored works. In the US, we use a very utilitarian uh, framework. And a lot of the book deals with the philosophy uh, and perspectives used around the world. Uh, but even in those countries that have strong moral rights traditions or more of an author rights view of the subject, don't typically apply it to technological creativity or invention. And therefore, I'm not sure that, that we will see the copyright field going down that road uh, to protect uh, artificial intelligence uh, works. Some countries have moved forward with stronger regimes. In my view, these are premature. I don't think we are ready for or need in a utilitarian framework uh, protections for works that are almost entirely machine produced. Uh, here, we try to associate with who created the machine and and to the extent that they build into the machine artistic things, that would be protectable under traditional copyright law. So I don't know that we need additional protections. The fact that there's shorter duration perhaps is an advance, but 50 years is certainly uh, an extremely long period of time to protect such works. So at the end of the day, I'm left with uh, a, a parsimonious approach, uh, a stingy approach to extending copyright into these areas. I think patents are the best methods to promote the kind of technological advances associated with what we're calling artificial intelligence. Uh, and I'm not sure we need to protect 
autonomous outputs. To the extent that they are integrated with human collaboration, as most such works are today, to the extent humans are involved in selecting and arranging, that will imbue copyright protection and associate it with that author. I'm also not worried that the companies that are engaging in this research, DeepMind, uh, Facebook, and a lot of the companies that have made very Amazon, making massive uh, investments, uh, I'm not, there's, they're not gonna stop doing that. We're gonna get a lot of creativity and technological advances uh, through their ability to appropriate returns to contract advertising, digital rights management, and other appropriability mechanisms. So I would be hesitant to, to, to be uh, a supporter of, of bestowing more copyright protection uh, for what we're calling uh, outputs of autonomous systems, apart from what the human authors associated with those works in terms of uh, uh, selecting and arranging what's in those outputs. So that's, those are my, my thoughts and I look forward to hearing uh, the other speakers and especially uh, our, our central speaker, Dr. Gale. Thank you very much, Peter. That was really, really interesting. Um, moving on to our spe second speaker today, Professor Pina D'Agostino, um, the floor is yours, thank you. Okay, great. Uh, thank you very much, Eden, and to the organizers for today. I'm honored to be part of this distinguished panel and delighted to say a few words in honor of one of my all-time favorite talents of human intelligence, Dr. Aviv Gaon and his latest book. So uh, first and foremost, a big congratulations to Aviv for his book, which marks yet another feat in his milestones of publications and trailblazing initiatives in this growing field. I have to say Aviv's visionary ideas and his brilliant and accessible writing are only matched by the fact that he is one fine human being. I had the good fortune to get to see the genesis of the book we celebrate today as I served as a supervisor from his doctoral days at Osgood, and recall uh, very early on during uh, one of our first meetings, Aviv uh, sitting in my office and us having some provocative conversations on which topic to choose. So it was either a topic on AI and copyright or another topic, and uh, wait for it, cannibalism and IP. Well, uh, you know the rest is history, Aviv, you clearly chose well, as at that time, there was also very little writing on AI and developments around AI, so you were ahead of the AI momentum. Though I understand Aviv is now developing the second topic on cannibalism and IP, and I invite you all to ask him about this in the Q&A. Now, when I mused on uh, what I might talk with you about, and given the pandemic is still uh, very much with us, and hopefully fading very soon. And uh, that innovation and access to valuable data has never been more relevant to get us out of this mess. Aviv's discussion in his book on resolving uh, data barriers for the advancement of AI and indeed the benefit of society is one that I think makes a real contribution. And this, of course, is not to take away from Aviv's deep dive into the history of AI 
his theoretical analysis on a possible AI IP theory and ascribing ownership to AI candidates. Indeed, uh, some of these issues are lighting up the courts and gaining more and more traction in the academic community. And um, this is years now after Aviv first started to think about them. I appreciate uh, Aviv's observation that in many ways, the AI discussion and all the emerging fighting for ownership control parallels the early struggles, authors and, and publishers, so between them. And this is something that I have observed myself in my own book, Copyright Contracts Creators. Aviv aptly affirms that AIs are now the new authors struggling for recognition and rights over the old institutions and elites. The book publishers remain with us today and shaping this new fight over copyright expansion. The arguments shifted and changed, but is still a debate over ideas, ownership, and royalties. And the debate continues with respect to data as not only is the ownership over the works of AI hotly contested, but so is the very data that goes in to begin with. And this in many ways is the newest form of property. What is increasingly clear is that AI requires massive amounts of data to develop. Without big data, there's no AI. What is less clear is that the mere availability of data, especially to the public most affected by it is not enough. As Aviv argues in uh, his Resolving Data Barriers chapter, AI needs good data. Incomplete or biased data can exacerbate problems. Good data, however, might be subject to copyright protection or be restricted, which poses a problem where the AI's input infringes copyright law or even privacy law, the output may infringe too. Now, this all resonates with me because it truly deals with real life and death problems we've had for some time and we've yet to resolve. And this in many ways points to Professor Menel's uh, comments earlier that we're dealing with an antiquated uh, system. Indeed, it is in many ways a walk down memory lane for me. Uh, now about 20 years ago, I was part of a multidisciplinary team led by Professor David Baver, the same professor who would later serve on Aviv's supervisory committee at Osgood and pen a prescient preface to his book, We Celebrate Today, and you should definitely read that. Professor Baver was my own uh, doctoral supervisor at the University of Oxford as part of a University of Oxford multidisciplinary research, research group in the early 2000s, we took on some of these challenging questions in light of a health database in the UK. Now, our two-year interdisciplinary flagship UK e-science study analyzed the e-Diamond project. So e-Diamond stood for Digital Mammography National Database. And this was a database based at the University of Oxford. Oxford, and really, which aimed to develop a federated database of digital mammographic images and patient-related data, underpinned by grid technology to support breast cancer screening and research nationally. The ultimate goal was to treat and cure breast cancer, improve women's survival rates by massing tons of mammogram data from across the UK. And the dream was that that was only the beginning. Um, it wanted to expand uh, internationally. E-Diamond was uh, comprised of 30 to 50 staff 
spread over 12 locations, including five universities, four NHS trusts, a global tech firm, and a rapidly expanding university spin-out company. E-Diamond received extensive public attention. Uh, I don't know if you recall, but there were um, articles published by Wire, the BBC. There was a press statement also made uh, by the Prime Minister at the time, Tony Blair. Our goal as a team was to present recommendations for the governance of sharing of these amounts, massive amounts of data. And this was big data deployment nearly two years ago and even before uh, the term big data was popular. Ultimately, our ethnographic study found some perverse results with the ownership and use rights to the data. Our study uncovered that the eDiamond's rights to the data could be owned by some of the individuals involved in the data making and gathering process and or also by the participating universities. This was an unwelcome result for the future of the database as the expectation among the parties and including the NHS was that the data were to be retained by the trust. Now, uncertainty in these rights resulted in an incomplete database when carving out ownership rights. Any future use of the eDiamond data generated by the individuals and the IP in such data required permission, and it was uncertain who would be in a position to authorize this use. In short, the stakeholders' massive investments of time and money and hopes to make a real difference that is to better ways to treat and diagnose breast cancer and advanced science generally were undermined because of lack of clarity in the use rights of the data. So the noble uses of this incredible database became stultified. Now, among the important lessons here is that whether we like it or not, copyright law, among other laws, is implicated. And indeed, our team published on this and delivered many a presentation on this topic to rooms with audience members whose eyes were glossing over. Uh, for instance, data in the form of mammograms could be protected as artistic works and radiology reports as literary works in their own right and collectively the database as compilations. And AI needs massive amounts of such data that could be subject to copyright for AI to train and detect cancers and for real-time access to users like, let's say, a surgeon in the operating room. And here, of course, you have all the complexities that go with copyright protection, such as authorship, whether independent contractors or employees are involved, term of protection, determining infringement, access, use rights, and so on. You see very clearly that knowing who owns what is paramount, but importantly, at the same time, is very cumbersome and really can make little sense in this context. And again, we go back to the, this antiquated system. So we search for solutions. This is where Aviv's work brings ours to the present and equally grapples with such lingering questions in the context of AI's increasing possibilities. And here I'm happy that decades later from our Oxford study, we are now ready for it and properly paying attention, eyes wide open to Aviv's important work. Now, Aviv further highlights a new set of challenges revolving around access and availability of the data. The current legal regime renders the AI market largely accessible only to dominant AI developers like the Apples, the Amazons, and Googles. 
small companies and other players that cannot acquire good data or are unwilling to face expensive legal battles in using copyrighted data might choose not to innovate, not to enter the AI market, or just use low quality data resulting in poor AI systems. Indeed, in Canada, statutory damages for copyright infringement can run to $20,000 per each unauthorized copy. There's currently an enormous legal and financial risk to companies conducting AI research, which could deter especially small players from investing in AI. It really is an all-round access to data and ultimately access to justice issue. And here Aviv highlights access to good quality data as well. Using low quality data leads to bias. AI is only as good as the data used to train it. When an algorithm is trained on data fraught with gender or racial biases, for instance, it will produce predictions and products that perpetuate or even magnify the same biases. For example, if some scholars have found using AI training data of public domain works from the early 1920s, this reflects biases against Blacks, women, the LGBTQ community, and other disadvantaged groups. To foster innovative AI research, it is crucial that high-quality data be readily accessible to developers. Aviv explores a variety of solutions and hear from possible government-funded programs to anonymize data or create synthetic data for AI training purposes to ultimately statutory intervention in the form of sui generis laws to a text and data mining and AI training exception akin to those we've seen in some form in the UK and other parts of the world to enable access to the greatest amounts of good data. Ultimately, retreating to fair use, fair dealing exceptions uh, for Aviv is not salutary as it may restrain courts from addressing the real significant issues, the relationship between AI and machines and human creations. A text and data mining exception could feature a distinction between using data for commercial purposes and other non-commercial public uses, including social causes. Now, royalties could also be applied when data is used partly or wholly to develop algorithms for commercial purposes. Ultimately, to promote AI training, governments ought to explore all possible approaches to balance a varied palette of interests and weigh all relevant considerations. Now to me, um, and I conclude with this, one of the most important revelations in an author's work, and in this case, Aviv's, is to figure out their worldview. What makes them tick? What motivates them to write a book, which often takes years of sacrifices and hard work? Aviv's worldview is to harness the benefits of emerging technology, temper the bad for the benefit of all of humanity. The mechanism to do this is the law. Laws need to be clear and fair and must level the playing field for everyone. The aim is to elevate AI-driven social benefits and to develop a globally competitive AI industry for the benefit of everyone, especially those who've been sidelined and continue to be sidelined by advances in technology. So there's a strong sense of social justice and fairness decency and common sense values in his work. 
And here, Aviv's work needs to be seen complementary to as many other initiatives which espouse the same core values. For instance, our Bracing for Impact conference and webinar series he helped conceive several years ago at Osgood, to his other publications, Leading Legal Disruption, Artificial Intelligence, and a Toolkit for Lawyers and the Law, his tireless grassroots training of so many students in his classes, to his mooting competitions, and to his ongoing founding of new programs. Bravo, Dr. Gaon, thank you for your human intelligence, and we look forward to the next big launch, perhaps on cannibalism and IP. Thank you very much, uh, Dr. D'Agostino. This is really interesting. And now we move on to our third speaker for today, Professor Stavula Karapapa, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much. Good evening, everyone. It is a, a great pleasure and an honor to be invited to comment on this work and to be part of this panel of distinguished copyright scholars. Uh, many thanks to Dr. Sarid for organizing this event and many thanks to Dr. Gaon for offering us through his book, the opportunity to reflect on some of the questions that are currently trending on the research interests of many copyright scholars on a worldwide level. As I am the third speaker to this book launch event, I thought it would be useful to draw some insights on the directions that the law is likely to, cha uh, to change at the policy level. The Future of Copyright in the Age of Artificial Intelligence is a book that offers a comprehensive analysis of copyright uh, and authorship theories, and it takes a particular focus on the possible impact that artificial intelligence might have on these theories. It is published at a time that artificial intelligence has gained a prominent focus in policy discussions on a worldwide level. Over the past uh, few years, courts have started hearing cases having to do with technologies that rely on copying and often make use of AI algorithms or machine learning tools, uh, such as Ternitin, since we are at the university uh, level. Uh, EU copyright has also been reformed in order to accommodate some kinds of activity that enable the fulfillment of artificial intelligence goals. And this includes uh, the exception on text mining and data analytics. But this seems at the policy level not to be enough. Uh, more recently, both the European Commission and the UK Intellectual Property Office have launched consultations, public consultations, uh, that are concerned with many of the questions that are specifically addressed in the work. For instance, should the output of artificial intelligence algorithms be protected by copyright? Who should own the copyright of works that have been developed via intel artificial intelligence? Should we be concerned about the lack of human input in the creation of computer generated and artificial intelligence generated works? Uh, Dr. Gaunt's book offers an interesting and timely contribution to these questions that seem to be pressing at the policy level. An interesting aspect of the book is that it advocates a more holistic approach to authorship. So uh, one of the claims that is made is that there is no good reason to exclude computer generated uh, and artificial intelligence generated creations from copyright. Uh, the UK and Ireland are some of the few jurisdictions that offer express protection to the so-called computer generated works. For those who are not familiar with UK and Irish copyright law, computer-generated works are defined uh, to be works that are generated by computers in circumstances where the author of the work is not an individual. And these are works that are receiving protection under the relevant statutory provisions. 
in particular, the UK Copyright Designs and Patents Act and also the Irish Copyrights Act clearly state that the author of computer generated works is the person who undertook the necessary arrangements in order for the work to be created. An interesting aspect of the UK legal system in particular is that the United Kingdom clearly exclude moral rights protection on computer generated works, even though Ireland does not seem to include a similarly expressed provision. At the time that these provisions were put in place, ownership of copyright in computer generated works was not in question. And the reason for that was that the computer was an instrument in a creative process that was initiated by a human author. The element of human intervention seemed to be a sine qua non of the creative process, the design of a software, an algorithm where primarily the result of human input. To that effect, declaring the person who undertook the arrangements to create a computer generated work as the author of that work did not seem to create any problems. This seemed to align with the theoretical underpinnings of copyright law. Taken from the utilitarianism perspective, it would not be troublesome to establish that computer generated works could add to public welfare. From the perspective of natural rights theories, and for instance, the Lockean theoretical, theoretical approach to property, it would not also be too burdensome to establish that the human input in the creative process could be a, a, a kind of labor effort, possibly skill and judgment that could justify proprietary entitlements to computer generated works. And also, if we were to reflect on the personhood approach to property rights and copyright in particular, the human input as reflection of the individual choices of an author would justify protection. Computer generated creativity was not independent from decisions that were taken by human authors. With the evolution of artificial intelligence technologies, it seems that um, artificial intelligence tools seem to gradually become autonomous and not dependent on human input. In cases that the process of creating a work takes place autonomously and without any human intervention, there is the possibility that the protection that is currently offered in some jurisdictions, at least to computer generated works, cannot apply. And this is because the requirement of a person by whom the arrangements are made in order for uh, the work to be created is not met. With the expansion of the use of artificial intelligence in the creation of copyright protected works, normative questions are also raised as to the subsistence of copyrights in artificial intelligence operated processes of creative, creative works. One of these issues concerns the extent to which sufficient incentives for human creativity will exist as soon as machine creativity starts taking over. This is particularly in cases where mass produ massively produced works generated through artificial intelligence could come in conflict with works that are created by human authors. I would welcome Dr. Gaun's reflections on this aspect, namely whether human creativity can still be incentivized through copyright once machine creativity starts taking over. An aspect that has concerned the European Union institutions last year, the European Parliament in particular, concerns whether copyright should uh, cover the creative outcome of a creative process or the creative process as such. And as policymakers, both at the European Union and the UK level are currently in search of solutions, I'm not sure how easy it is to reach safe policy conclusions. Whereas works created through artificial intelligence can in principle be protected by copyright in Ireland and the United Kingdom to the extent of course that human input is involved, compatibility of these provisions with the originality test is dubious. 
For instance, the Court of Justice of the European Union has developed an originality test that means that a work is protected once it reflects um, the author's own intellectual creation. And this test looks both at the creative output and, in addition, the creative process of making the work. As a result, the extent to which protection can be offered to works generated by artificial intelligence at the EU level seems to be doubtful. For these works to be result of free and creative choices, it is necessary that the personal touch of the author is stamped on the work and practically uh, following rules and instructions is not going to be uh, in compliance with the originality threshold at the EU level. Another aspect that is also very relevant when we speak about copyright, artificial intelligence, and the notion of authorship is whether copyright can actually exist if authorship, at least in the way that is traditionally conceived, can actually uh, flourish. The personhood theories underpinning the author's own intellectual creation requirement for copyright protection, both at the European and also the UK level, cannot support copyright protection for AI creativity, and at least not under the existing copyright norms. I would be interested to see how the finding of Dr. Gaun's extensive research, both in terms of depth uh, and also in terms of um, uh, breadth, could inform these topical policy debates. Practically, it is not just about whether artificial intelligence created works can attract protection, but also who the owner could be. There is an extensive discussion in the book about possible candidates for ownership that could be the programmer, the user, uh, the artificial intelligence itself. Other alternatives might also be explored. Uh, however, one of the things that becomes the more and more preeminent in the light of policy discussion about amending copyright laws is uh, in order to address the challenge of artificial intelligence is whether legislative change is at all necessary this links to an old yet uh, always relevant question in copyright law, does new technology require new uh, laws? Professor uh, Menel earlier on uh, commented uh, on the uh, ways in which copyright has been constantly shaped by technology. And uh, it is an open question as to whether now artificial intelligence tools and all of these new technologies that we have at hand do actually require redrafting legislation uh, at the various places, the various jurisdictions where this is currently subject to uh, consideration. And then of course, the second question to that comes, when is it necessary to legislate in order to address technological advancements? Uh, should legislators wait for the technology to have an impact on the enforcement of the law? Uh, or should this be at the stage that the technology changes the underlying justifications and uh, underpinnings of legal rules? Uh, or taking this further, should we wait for the new technology to um, turn uh, existing, existing legal concepts um, obsolete. Uh, in addition to that, what is the kind of evidence that lawmakers should base law reform on, especially when we speak about new rights and privileges that are to be introduced. If um, ownership uh, in, or uh, is about to change, for instance, and the rules about ownership are to change, how do we go about that? And what is the kind of evidence that we require? Should we wait for the first court cases that identify gaps in the existing laws? Uh, alternatively, do we need economic evidence or social analysis that indicates the need to change uh, existing legal norms? And of course, under which conditions rights and privileges introduced owing to a new technology can be repealed 
or abolished if they are deemed to be ineffective. I would be tremendously interested to hear Dr. Gaon's views on this point. I uh, thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. I think it makes a tremendously topical addition to current literature and debates on the matter. And um, yeah, I have the impression that it could actually fit very well in policy discussions, at least from this side of the Atlantic. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Professor Karapapa, and thank you to all our three discussants. This was mind-blowing, thought-provoking, giving us a lot of things to think about across jurisdictions, past and future. So I think, Aviv, you have a lot to um, tell us now in response. Just a reminder to our participants, if you have questions you want to um, pose to a, our Aviv or one of the discussants, please do so in the q and I'll collect these. If you want to talk in person, just raise your virtual hand and I will give you access to um, participating. Dr. Gaon, the floor is yours. Right, uh, thank you, thank you so much. I'll try to limit my, uh, my response because I'm really interested in your questions as well. Um, um, so uh, thanks uh, all for a lot for the kind words and thoughtful remarks and for your willingness uh, to plow through my book. Uh, I'm also in debt to my uh, dear colleague and friend, uh, Eden, uh, for organizing this event and for Essex Law School for hosting us on their virtual campus at least for the time being. Um, well, if I had a choice, uh, I would be more than happy just to keep listening to the wonderful comments and sharp uh, analysis of my book. But I guess that uh, I'm also expected to do some labor here. So here is uh, my, uh, my, my, my initial thought, thoughts and I'll try to respond to the comments uh, afterwards. So my book offers uh, an analysis of IP theories and explore the AI impact on copyright law. In the book, I argue for an inclusive approach for, to authorship that recognize human and non-human creations and explore the legal concept of artificial intelligence. Uh, basically, the book stands on three pillars, technology, IT theory, and data. The first pillar is technology and especially artificial intelligence, which is very much like saying, as Professor Manel said, that it's, uh, it's too wide to say you can say computer science and artificial intelligence. No one really understands uh, the, the differences between the two comparing the, the, two, the two concepts. Uh, AI is a highly complex field and bridging between the tech terminology and the legal theories was a very difficult challenge. The second pillar is IP theory. And my goal there was to explore whether one or more legal theories can recognize AI creation and uh, if, uh, if uh, legal theories can adapt to recognize AI authorship. Take the incentive theory, as, as Professor Manel mentioned, uh, the incentive theory is a big challenge for AI. And the questions were, should AI, uh, should IP law recognize AI as authors to incentivize creations? Who should be incentivized, the AI or the human programmer? And what if incentivizing AIs has no effect on the motivation uh, of an AI to create? And if, if we decide to protect only the human programmer, is this decision justified in cases where a programmer effect on the work is minor or to a no effect at all. For example, when the computer creates something the program did not intend or expect to create. Another example that I, uh, I, I looked into the, in, in the book is the Lockean theory. Uh, this might raise, I think, uh, or raise a few eyebrows, I think, uh, right? How can Locke support AI, um, AI rights, given that it, its theory is based on person's right for his fruit of his labor? Uh, well, uh, first, Locke theory uh, could serve to justify human AI ownership since the AI is the fruit of the human labor. And secondly, I found uh, Locke's manifesto on parental power relevant from a philosophical uh, way as well. 
look at emphasize the limitation on parental rights. Uh, there are limits of for how long the parent should have a dominion over the property of uh, of his child. Uh, similar reasonings, I think, should apply to the AI programmer relations, AI being the child and the programmer as a sort of uh, parent. Uh, in developing IP theory in my book, I offer as an outline for uh, AI authorship, like placing, and I think I, I, I refer to uh, uh, Professor Kaparpa uh, mentioning earlier, like placing the Harry Potter sorting hat. We had uh, to decide who is the owner of the AI work. And there are several candidates. I mentioned the programmer, which seemed to me the most favorable, the user, maybe the AI itself, or perhaps not at all, if the work falls under the public domain. Uh, I also explored other suggestions like joint authorships between each of the candidates, derivative works, work made for hire, and more. The question is what we should do in, in looking into the current stage of uh, development. And in the current state of development, in cases where the computer only serves as an instrument, I think the programmer or the user uh, should be considered as authors. In the next phase, and this is where, uh, where the challenge is, is, is taking us, uh, when the creation is fully automated, the answer become more complex, leaving, in my opinion, to courts uh, to determine the level of human influence. In this scenario, the author might be the programmer or the public. And I should clarify that a program and AI authorship model in which the programmer reserves all the rights in both the program and the output of the program, of the program is unwarranted. I don't think it's the right uh, policy outcome. And I'll get uh, to that in, in a second. Um, I believe that a user AI authorship model might be better for the interim period in computer-generated works, given the importance of the users to the dissemination of the works and their potential to supervise uh, uh, the program. The next challenge I was facing is thinking about copyright standards, originality, and creativity, which I found very interesting to explore. I offered ideas as to the direction copyright standard might lead us in the coming decade. Understanding human and machine creativity can advance human research and help developing the concept of creativity, both for humans and for uh, machines. And I showed how the current legal regime that machine works as inferior, as inferior creations, a mere copy, as distinguished in the case of Toyota versus Mishwork, and called for the development of a standard that treat humans and computer-generated creations and AI as equals. Finally, uh, the last pillar of my book uh, is was Stilo's data. I echo Google's uh, scholar quote standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, almost every aspect of human life, from politics and social media to healthcare, is dependent on data. It makes data today, as Pina mentioned, uh, the most valuable resource. Uh, there are many sources, as we mentioned, data, data like Google, Wikipedia, but the, the big issue here is not the sources of uh, data that, uh, that we have, but also uh, uh, the data that we can use uh, to produce uh, uh, what we want to produce here and the AI technology. Um, and now, well, I'll just uh, will address some of the comments uh, that uh, were made here. And getting first to uh, uh, Professor uh, Manel's comment, um, I, I have three, uh, three comments to say here. First of all, I think that one of the issues that I try to explore in the book is the concept of uh, artificial intelligence within the legal regimes. I, when I looked into the concept of AI, I saw that there are so many different definitions to AI. And I thought that it's a problem not only for IP and copyright, but it's also a problem for law. Because as lawyers, we want to see if there are some type of definition that we can use in order to produce changes or to produce the, a, a certain policy. And that's one of the things that I, I, I looked into in my book and I tried to identify 
you know, the right uh, uh, frame for uh, uh, the AI concept in, the, in, the, in, in law. And this is one of the things that I, I think is very important. As you mentioned, artificial intelligence, saying artificial intelligence today is like saying nothing at all. It's a problem. And as lawyers, we have to define artificial intelligence. And this is why I think this is one of the challenges that we should uh, and that, that we should address, and especially especially today, not only for IP but also for other uh, uh, legal uh, legal regimes. Um, two other things that I want to mention here is about uh, what we say: the standards and the, the duration uh, of the standard and the standard of uh, of copyright in general. When we call, when we mention uh, originality standard, and we had the discussion about creativity in the book, and I think that. Uh, this is the big gem that I'm trying to, uh, to uh, you know, to, to fix there. I'm trying to figure out how we can define creativity, and this is a challenge that I think is something that is very important not only for human, for for non-humans, for AI, but also for humans as well. We don't, we find it very hard to define creativity. The U.S. Supreme Court in Fist in 1992, in 1992 uh, tried to give us some sort of. Uh, uh, sort of a definition for creativity, which is not very useful in my opinion. And now we have to look and see how we can define creativity from a machine's uh, way point of view. And, uh, and obviously, if we won't be able to define creativity for machines, it would be very difficult for us to develop any standard at all. And this is something that I think uh, we should uh, keep uh, exploring. Um, uh, one other element that I thought is, is worth mentioning here is what we call human influence. I think it's something that were mentioned, I think uh, uh, Professor Manil, you mentioned this, and also Professor Papaba, you mentioned that in the policy aspect, how we can define what could be uh, copyrighted and how we can define how we can uh, view this uh, type of creations. And, and today, when you look into this uh, on, on the standard of, of copyright, uh, we say that we look into the human influence. We see if there are human influence that that affected the work. So this is might justify uh, allocating protection for the human. And this is where I think this is where we come to that we have to, to see if from a policy perspective, this is something that we, we want as, as a standard. Do we want human influence to be the new standard for uh, corporate protection for AI works? And I don't think it's, I, I don't think it's required. Uh, and and it, gives, it, it brings me to the second point that I want to mention here. Uh, is uh, whether AI output should be copyrighted at all. And here I have to say that I, I think that uh, we, should, we should not uh, award copyright protection for AI output for extended period of time. And I think that when I mentioned here, that I mentioned earlier that I'm standing on, 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 the, on the shoulders of giants, I think this is where I refer to your work, Professor Monell, in earlier uh, papers about computer-generated work and the duration of the computer-generated work. And I, and I totally agree that we should not uh, uh, allocate protection for AI output more than a, a few years at most. Uh, and this is something that is very important to emphasize because people tend to, you know, to, uh, um, to mix between uh, the fact that I, you know, you offer protection for the program itself, which is something that, you know, I have, I have my, my, my reservations about the, the duration of protection for computer programs as well, but I'd say that at least for the AI output, I think it's something that is definitely unwarranted. And even if we want to, to, uh, to award protection for the AI output, it should be very limited in scope. Um, um, moving on to, the, uh, to your uh, um, comments, Pina, and I think this is, uh, uh, you know, what you said about data is something that uh, I, I found out as, as sort of a barrier by itself. And this is the way that I try to frame that in my, in my book 
And I had, and, and several of my colleagues uh, criticized the way that I framed it because in the book, I, I called it resolving data barriers. And, more, and many people say, why are you saying that privacy is a barrier? Privacy is a good thing, right? It's important for us to have you know, our, our information and our data uh, private, but this is exactly what I'm trying to say here. Because when we look into and, and see uh, and into these challenges and we say that, you know, uh, it's important to have privacy, it's important to have copyright, we don't discuss the issues, we don't discuss the problems that we are creating by creating this type of regulation. And I think that's, uh, Professor Kapawi, this is, a, this is one of the elements that you mentioned as well, because we have to understand that there is a price for regulation and there is a price for data regulation. And we have to recognize this price. And this is something that I'm trying to do here to shift the balance. Because right now, as, as, as Pina mentioned, right now we have a, a serious problem for a small and medium AI companies that are, they, they don't have enough resources to develop their technology. Uh, and and this, this in turn creates problems to the market. We see that, uh, and this is from you know, more like a competition aspect, but it's also very important to understand that when we talk about uh, Facebook and Amazon and other companies that are controlling the markets, the reason this is happening is because we don't have enough resources for other medium and small companies that they can use. And this is something that I think that as law school, as legal schools, we have to address uh, as well. And, um, and, and the last point that I want to mention here, addressing uh, Professor Kapapa, uh, what, what you, you, said, you said earlier about legislation and whether I think that legislation is something that we should uh, do instead of making some changes to corporate law. So here I have to say that I don't think there is anything that we need to do or required to do for the, uh, let's say for the time being. I think that uh, corporate and IP law can sustain this change. And, um, and, and I think that you didn't mention that by name, but I always reminded uh, from my colleagues when I mentioned uh, the discussion about technology and law, that the, you know, the, the Easter book uh, saying about the law of the horse and whether we need the uh, tech oriented laws to make these changes or not. And I always say that you know, we can find a way to solve the problems within the tool, with, with the tools that we have today uh, in the future, and this is something that I think uh, Professor Weber mentioned to me. I think it was uh, at the beginning of my journey. He said, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't look that far. You shouldn't look into the next 10 or 20, 20 years from now. No one knows where we will be in 20 years. So obviously you shouldn't uh, look at that, uh, for, that for that long uh, and try to focus on what happened in the five to 10 years. And I think this is exactly what I try to do. I try to see how IP law today and the legal theories in IP, in IP law can sustain this change. And I think that uh, the, the, my, my, uh, my, my result, my, um, my outcome is that I think that we can use the, the tool that we have today uh, uh, to address these changes. However, some will be, might, will, will have to adjust. And I think that what you just mentioned um, uh, earlier about what happening today in Europe, it is a big problem. The, the way that you views uh, uh, copyrights uh, for uh, non-humans is, is an issue, but there are countries within the EU, maybe now we don't, we don't not within the, EU, the, uh, the United Nations, but within the EU continent, and the UK is, UK is an example that thinks about these changes. And we had, I think, uh, uh, two years ago, the UK published a very interesting report about, uh, about uh, uh, um, uh, uh, legal rights to, uh, to uh, technology and AIs, and they address some of the problems. So we are thinking about this today, and I think that maybe we'll have to make some adjustments 
I think especially around what I call the uh, uh, originality and standards for copyright and IP and the duration of this uh, right, this is where I think changes might happen. But I don't think that IP law and copyright law will become obsolete within the five, uh, five or 10 years. I think that uh, laws and copyright and IP law will remain very important for this field and development of this field. And we as legal scholars have an obligation to see and to look and see what should happen uh, in this market and what should we do in order to make these uh, uh, changes that we think that we should do in order to make this uh, uh, industry uh, prosper. So I think that was uh, um, some of my questions, my, my remarks, and I'm more than happy to, uh, to address more, uh, more comments and questions. Thank you very much, Aviv. And thank you again to our discussants. This was um, really, really interesting. I'll quickly um, kind of want to follow up with a few of our discussants, um, if they could clarify some things that they said or, or maybe emphasize things that I think would be interesting. Um, starting with Professor Manel, you were kind of taking us through the history of copyright, talking about maybe other fields of law, such as patents, where, where AI is at today. And you were talking about maybe the distinction between what, what's happening you know, across the Atlantic in the US versus I mean, I think Aviv, uh, Dr. Gowen mentioned that as well, what's happening today in Europe, which I think are taking two very interesting um, directions, if you like. Maybe, um, and this is a question I want to pose to you, maybe AI is different to everything that we knew despite the dishwasher and despite the camera, and it does, you know, necessitate to um, leave behind the idea of the incentive theory and start thinking about what, you know, human authorship or the reflection of the human intellect is. So that's my, uh, my question to you, Professor Manel. Um, Professor Diagusto, I found the um, example of the e-diamonds um, exceptionally interesting. Um, it shows us the problems that we encounter when we um, come through big data. And, and I want to ask you, um, in a way, when we think about AI and big data, aren't we all authors? So, so maybe the kind of exceptions that we want to see is something that allows more of legalitarian or, or these kinds of licenses or exceptions in copyright. What would your kind of reflection on that be? Uh, finally, Professor Karapapa, um, you mentioned the uh, European Union's InfoPAC info um, decis decision, um, which tells us that an author um, must reflect their own creativity um, in the creations that they were, um, that they're creating. And you asked Aviv whether um, we should just wait for the courts to tell us um, what's supposed to happen. And maybe reflecting on what's happening today in the UK and in the EU, um, maybe, you know, kind of countering what I said to Peter, maybe we should, you know, take a breath, take it easy, see where this is going. This is history repeating itself in different forms. Um, so maybe we should kind of like put our foot on the get on, on the brakes and, and see, you know, what directions we take before we start legislating. So I'd love to hear from our panelists and maybe our response from Aviv as we gather more questions in the Q&A. Uh, we'll start with the um, same order that we did before. So Professor Manel, please. Well, thank you, Aiden and Aviv. I think your comparison of, of AI to other uh, technologies is somewhat complicated by a couple of things. Uh, AI fits into the area of software-related inventions, which doesn't fit neatly within the IP systems that, you know, the historic systems that, you know, computer software is a form of technology that exists in a textual uh, medium. And so, so that's part of the problem that, that software was seen as a problem area uh, in the 1960s and led to uh, a version that 
has occupied us for most of the last 50 years of trying to figure out how to separate idea from expression and a lot of these, uh, you know, really interesting puzzles. And, you know, thanks to the way in which the Supreme Court resolved the Oracle Google case, I think it has not caused terrible problems, although I would have preferred a decision that confronted copyrightability of APIs. And I also think that, you know, there's uncertainty and, and it was an experiment. We're about to embark on another experiment. And, you know, that's, that's where I'm struggling a bit. You know, dishwashers have never produced copyrighted content. Uh, it's possible that Jackson Pollock could have taken a dishwasher and filled it with ink and produced another type of artwork. But we didn't face that question, although perhaps people have tried to copyright and would get copyright for, you know, ink blots or other types of works. I mean, that type of technology or art form is used in the psychology field. You know, how do people interpret ink blots? And, and I suspect that companies in that field may protect their ink blots. Uh, and, and, but it's never risen to the kind of level that we're already seeing with what we're calling uh, AI. Here's, I guess, where I was trying to, to get us started on. Had we labeled AI pattern recognition, I don't know that we would be quite where we are today. I think it is somewhat semantic. And, and calling it artificial intelligence, I think, leads people naively or just you know, based on Hollywood to think that it really is mimicking human thought processes. And, and that's, that's you know, understandable, but I think it's unfortunate. And when you get deeply into these areas, you realize that, that neural networks are nothing, you know, even though they are analogizing by using the word neural, they're nothing like, uh, or at least they are uh, different from a human process. And, and we've never sort of crossed that barrier into what we think of as sort of human sentience. And, and that's where emotion and art and a lot of other concepts perhaps emerges in our, in our brains. And that's, that's where you know, we're still in the science fiction realm. And so I, you know, I'm struggling with that. Now, Aiden asked, I think, a really interesting question, uh, maybe unwittingly, about why AI doesn't fit other molds. Dishwashers are machines they easily fit within the utility patent system. Whereas neural network-based AI systems are not capable of easily fitting into the patent system because under most patent systems, and especially in the United States, there's a written description requirement. And it is not possible right now for most AI systems to explain cause and effect. Uh, that's not true of computer programming traditionally. Traditional computer programming has a textual form that can be turned into flowcharts or other logic diagrams, whereas AI sometimes produces results that are perhaps spurious. We, we don't quite understand it well enough. Now, I under, you know, my reading of, of AI-related literature 
on the technical side tells me that this is a current interest, that this is considered a, a hot topic, that trying to develop ways of deciphering uh, what we call AI uh, is you know, gonna be an important area for research. And as that develops, we will perhaps get insight into how computers, what we might call think, which was a question that, that Aviv was raising in his book. You know, he's talking about human influence, but, you know, but he's also asking, what does creativity mean? Now, on that question, I'll try to just hit all the issues quickly. Uh, you know, we have this Bleistein opinion. Uh, this is the circuit poster case where the Supreme Court said, we're not really gonna explore what human authorship is about because we're not we're not art critics we're not artists we're not musicians and that's just a practical reality of of the judiciaries in most parts of the world uh, in patent areas we do use technical experts in some areas in germany uh, that's more common in the u.s you know it's usually bringing in expert witnesses but but that's that's a problem that we have you know, we, we don't inquire into the human thought process very much, uh, even though we, we believe that humans are thinking, but, but copyright has not gone down that path. Another comment uh, that I just wanna, two more comments. One is with regards to what would it mean to protect AI? Uh, I do think that having a very short duration system could perhaps address some of the concerns. I'm not, I don't, Technically, I don't feel it's necessary. I haven't seen enough data to tell me that Google or Facebook or even startups are really in need of that. I mean, you can protect a lot of what we're calling this type of research through cloud computing, privacy, I'm sorry, trade secrecy type of protection. And, and so in a somewhat perverse way, we could analogize to, uh, to the area of fashion law uh, because this is, another area that doesn't fit easily within the existing system. The U.S. is fairly uh, disinclined to protect fashion. And until the Star Athletica case, most people from the fashion conscious districts and legislators from those districts were proposing short, very short duration protection so as to discourage the fast fashion uh, piracy markets. And ironically, that push seems to have been reduced after the Star Athletica case, which made perhaps a little more room in copyright. And the reason people may have pulled back is because life plus 70 is a lot more attractive than 18 months or two years. Uh, but I, I do think that it might be relatively harmless to protect uh, things. It would be more like a hot news misappropriation. You know, if you developed an AI system that could produce news stories, you might want to protect that for a short time, but but that's perhaps you know that's very different from the kinds of protections that we're seeing, and and it's when it gets long that you get into these cases like Oracle Google where there's so much at stake, and that's I think disruptive and counterproductive. Uh, last, I really do think that uh, Pina's comments about privacy and Aviv's comments are important. I mean, I don't have the same. Uh, sort of view that privacy is the most uh, uh, sacred of interests, especially in free societies. It's a complicated issue. And I would agree that certain types of privacy, 
very much need to be protected. But think about phenotype and genotype data. This is gonna be the answer to societies addressing public health uh, pandemic and other kinds of challenges that we face. If we had that data in anonymized forms along the lines, that would be a way by which we could vastly uh, uh, promote bioscience research. And I feel that we are in some ways, you know, being held back by these other uh, concerns. And I don't want to belittle those concerns, but I also want to say that, that there's a balance to be struck here. And if every year you went in for your annual checkup and your doctor had all of your genotype and phenotype and, and all of your nutritional and all of this other data, they could do a lot better. That would save society massive amounts. It would extend life. There are so many benefits to be had. And so that's why I agree. And, and also, you know, as regards the discrimination of AI systems, that could be a factor. And I don't, I haven't seen, you know, sort of, uh, I haven't seen sort of a, a study that says that having more data would necessarily help under current circumstances. I don't think it would hurt, but you know, we're still at kind of an early stage of thinking through that. But, but I, I really, I think that that is perhaps one of the most important questions surrounding AI related research. Yeah, that's a, that's a great segue, uh, Eden. Uh, you asked me the question about, in a way, aren't we all authors? And going to Professor Mendel's comments now, there's um, something that actually uh, in the study eDiamond, it's something that I don't even need to guess about because we actually conducted many workshops with patient rights groups. So in a sense, in the eDiamond project, the authors are can be seen as the patients themselves, right? The women walking into the NHS clinics, um, you know, getting their mammograms done, and then those very records were then uploaded onto the eDiamond database. So when we held a series of these workshops in London, where you are right now, um, the patients were very receptive, very happy uh, that we were doing this type of work, and. Um, for the purposes of advancing research, right, to try and cure the advancements of, you know, breast cancer treatments and so on. Um, what they had concerns with is whether it went into different hands, so for commercial purposes. So when it no longer was um, for in within the context of uh, advancements of science and health and something that can do good, then they had issues. So in a sense, what we undertook is to have this context-specific approach to look at the uses of the data. Um, the patients were um, happy to share it, but you know, depending on the circumstances. And so, when we we're trying to figure out, you know, ownership models, what we thought would be the best model would be one that is a hybrid model, which would be one sensitive also to include uh, patients somehow there. We didn't figure that out. We didn't go that far because I have to say, and I mentioned this, when I came across the pond to Canada, so this is about 15 years ago now, um, you know, wasn't very well received. And especially when I talked about patients, um, that was also something that was perverse to even think that they would be involved 
in um, the, the governance model. Now, I think 50, 15 years later, if we were to have this conversation and they're happening now, I think it would be very different. But I think perhaps we were uh, maybe a little ahead of our time. And that's also what happens sometimes with biotech and all of our innovations, right? We're just ahead of what the public is ready to uh, receive and embrace, right? So it's also about timing and all this. Um, so I think now we're, especially with the pandemic um, with us and all of the different permutations of these issues that we've seen now, I think we are uh, ripe to have these conversations and to come up with solutions. Um, and also here, when we think about solutions, it's of course the law, but the law is in within the wider social context, right? Within the medical profession, with the engineers, like so you need that multidisciplinary approach. And that's something that, you know, I would encourage all of us and you know, we're all doing that type of work, but not to see things in silos. And going back to Aviv's book, I think that's something that I really, you know, appreciate in his work is that he's really grounded in um, you know, diverse approaches and perspectives to figuring it out. Thank you, Eden, for asking the question about InfoPAC. Uh, this is um, a decision that still puzzles me. For those who have not happened to read this decision, this is a case from the Court of Justice of uh, the European Union. And the most uh, controversial aspect of it, at least the aspect that uh, Eden would like me to focus on, is the fact that it confirmed that a sequence of 11 words, if copied, constitutes a, a, in principle a protected work by copyright if it is the author's own intellectual creation. Uh, this case is a bit controversial uh, at the time of mass digitization, machine learning and artificial intelligence tools uh, that mostly rely on copying in order to produce all of the results afterwards. Uh, we cannot, the more the data, the better the algorithms become. Uh, so uh, this is uh, one of these cases that is considered to be setting a norm uh, against the creation and the full realization of artificial intelligence uh, legislation, uh, supportive legislation uh, in the European Union. Uh, this is an expansive and very protectionist approach to uh, copyright. Uh, we have seen in other cases, uh, some of them have also reached the Court of Justice of the European Union that um, a sequence of 256 characters and extracts as, shut, as small as that could be also uh, in principle a work protected by copyright. This is the Meltwater case. And uh, we have also had uh, Justice Arnold um, uh, who confirmed uh, in uh, the Tixdax case, this is a case about uh, uh, videos of cricket matches. He found that um, uh, eight seconds of a video containing cricket matches, practically the highlights of the match, are still considered to be uh, a work protected by copyright. So if uh, we are in um, uh, a situation whereby a work that is protected by copyright can be something as short as that, and practically um, saying that uh, there is no de minimis rule, if something is the author's own uh, intellectual creation, it can still be protected. This means that at the time of mass digitization, even very short extracts can still qualify for protection. And then we are leaning towards licensing mechanisms 
the full realization of the text mining and data analytics exceptions that are currently available both under European Union and UK copyright law are fairly limited if everything is deemed to be a protective work, work however short it is. Uh, the only thing that the Court of Justice did not affirm is a copyright work is the taste of cheese. But um, other than that, uh, even very short extracts still qualify for, uh, for protection. And this um, puts the European Union and the UK copyright in a drastic uh, distinction to US copyright, where we have had the Google Books case, uh, a case that affirmed um, that it is possible to create big silos of data to the effect, of course, that there is some public interest involved in that um, uh, kind of uh, activity. And that could probably be more aligned towards realizing a culture of enabling uh, new technologies and supporting technologies such as um, uh, those, uh, such as artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on. Uh, and this is why I focused primarily on EU and UK copyright, because we see here that it becomes the more and more difficult to justify a supportive approach towards new technologies if we start counting things on a word-by-word -word basis or on a second-by-second -second basis. If everything is protected, then this is the norm, and then any kind of defensive rule would stand as a mere exception to the generalist approach of protection of copyright. So um, some of the current questions that are trending in the copyright um, world uh, at this side uh, is this uh, aspect of having a very protectionist view towards um, copyright law, and at the same time, having defenses that are very narrow. Uh, and uh, also when it comes to uh, artificial intelligence, despite the policy efforts into making this um, uh, kinds of technologies um, possible or at the legal side of things, still the efforts are bound by decisions that actually protect authors to a level that uh, is unprecedented. So uh, th there are a lot of challenging issues there for policymakers, I reckon, and not just for policymakers, also for copyright scholars. It is quite difficult to reconcile how such a broad notion of what is a protected subject matter can uh, align with uh, all of the technologies that can actually create works, but can also infringe works that are already protected by copyright. Dr. Gon, just before you wrap up things, because we have literally three more minutes, um, just want to uh, mention there was a question in the, in the Q&A, if you could possibly address that as well, about whether we should um, expand our understanding of what personhood means from a legal perspective. The floor is yours. Thank you. So I'll just uh, uh, skip very quickly to those uh, two questions. Uh, because we're uh, right uh, on time. Uh, so just to, just to give you some sort of uh, taking a big picture again. So I'm answering one of the questions earlier about uh, should we uh, let the legislator make the decisions or should we leave it to courts? I think that for the time being, I think that courts might, might suffice. I don't think that uh, getting into a legislation process uh, is the right thing to do. And we saw, and there are so many other examples when the legislature intervene in certain matters and it's, uh, it, it causes uh, se severe damages. So I don't think it is something that we should do, especially when, when we are addressing AI. And I'll just mention here that one of the things that I, I, I advocate for in, in related to technology, you think about ethics as well. I think that uh, we, we disregard the fact that some of the, uh, the regulation should be uh, uh, leave to the uh, you know to the companies and the firms themselves to do and, and I think that this is something that we can do and actually uh, one of my colleagues uh, um, Professor Rian Stidman we and I will publish a paper in, in 2019 calling for exactly uh, uh, that 
so that's one of the one of the statements I don't want to make, and and it relates to the questions in the I think that's uh, um, in the in the comments about the personal. Uh, so I think it's a, it's a wonderful question. Uh, should we allocate rights to uh, to AI? Should I to should AI be recognized and uh, as a legal form, as a human legal form, in other in other types of rights? And I think again that's uh, and and this is what one of the issues that I wrote in my in my book. I think that it we should consider allocating certain rights to AI. Uh, whether uh, whether it will be in the next uh, five or ten years is a different question. But uh, I think that certain certain especially certain property rights and uh, certain rights uh, relates to ownership uh, might uh, be something that we should consider in the next uh, five or ten years if and when uh, AIs will, uh, will become uh, in certain levels, uh, uh, some, some in certain levels human or uh, human level intelligence, which is something that we should, uh, uh, we should consider in the future. Now, I don't think that's, uh, that's the right approach. Thank you very much, Aviv, and thank you very much to our wonderful discussants. We look forward to welcoming you to Aviv's next book launch on cannibalism and IP in a few years here at the University of Essex. Thanks again for joining us this evening and thanks for a great discussion. Thank you very much and goodbye. Thank you all. Bye.